I'm excited to, to do this morning together, and this will be our final Sunday in the Reconciliation series. And uh, as you hopefully have picked up by now, this is more than just a sermon series for us, but this has really been a season to sit in this vision that we believe God has given us as a church. And uh, it's this vision that has been, in a lot of ways, the same thing he's had us doing for what will be 11 years of Antioch next week, I think. Um, But this is sort of a fresh way of putting words to it putting handles to it with the hopes that we can be more effective and more faithful and more fruitful in pursuing this vision than we ever have before. And so we, uh, we're spending this, uh, this time and closing it out today kind of really trying to drill in and get a, a picture of what is this thing that, that we believe God has called us to be part of. And so the kind of anchoring passage that you've uh, hopefully come to recognize now is Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. And this is the scripture that has um, really jumped out and become the starting point for us in terms of trying to articulate what is the gospel, what is the good news of who God is and what he's doing in the world uh, through Jesus, and also what does it mean for us then to be his people. And so instead of reading this for you, I want to invite you to read this with me uh, this morning. It'll be three slides. I want to read uh, this whole little passage. So let's read this out together. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Amen. And so we have taken this language that Paul uses in the letter to the church in Colossae, that in Christ God is reconciling all things to himself. And that is what the cross of Jesus is ultimately all about. It's not just about me having a personal relationship with God so that I can go to heaven when I die, although we do celebrate that there's something to that, but we are reimagining the cross as something that's actually representative of this, this good news, this cosmic revolution that God has launched through Jesus. And we've kind of tried to represent Paul's language of all things through uh, these six boxes or these six domains, really rooted in the Hebrew concept of shalom, of when, when things are right, when things are as they ought to be. As God originally created the world to be, things were good. There was a right relationship between humanity and God and humanity and one another and humanity in ourselves and humanity in the rest of creation. 
And so we've kind of taken the cross and tried to represent what does all things, if Jesus is reconciling all things, all these relationships are kind of uh, embodied here within this symbol of the cross, of Jesus' sacrificial and victorious death uh, on our behalf. And so if that's the gospel that we're celebrating, that we are part of something so much bigger than we ever thought, then the invitation that we've been trying to communicate over the last several weeks is what does it look like to be part of this? What does it look like to live as a cross-shaped or a cruciform people? People whose lives, every aspect of our lives, are being shaped and transformed by this gospel. And so for each of these kind of boxes that make up the cross, we're suggesting a set of practices. We'll walk through those where we've been real quick. The first is God, to be reconciled to God, to have a right relationship with God. We're inviting all of us into this practice of communion, of, of abiding in Christ, of building rhythms into our days and our weeks and our months and our years that are going to create space for us to receive our true identity that's been given to us as the children of God. And so practices in communion include things like worship and the Lord's table that we observe here on Sundays, but it includes all those other ways that God has given us to be with him, to commune with him through scripture and prayer and silence and solitude and fasting and whatever else that might look like, all throughout Scripture and all throughout the history of the church, God's people have communed with him through this set of practices. And so we want to invite you to think about how God would have you integrate those into your life. Secondly, self. What does it look like to live into a reconciled relationship with yourself? Which may be sort of a strange idea, But it's the idea that we have a severed, a fractured, a broken relationship with ourselves and God is wanting to restore that to be right as well. And so we're calling you to engage in the practice of formation, simply becoming who we are, living into the identity that we've been given in Christ and learning how to become the truest, most authentic uh, expression of, of who we actually are. So like Evan mentioned, that Enneagram course we're doing this weekend, which by the way, I know it looks like it should have a goat head in the middle of it or something like that. It's not as weird as you think. It really is a helpful tool um, in spiritual formation, and that's why we're offering it here on the back end of this uh, series is for those that are interested in taking a first step in this. It's been one of the most useful tools for me in terms of learning to become who I am. Uh, next, we have the, the box of city. Forgot what order I put them in, thanks. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, we looked at the idea that there's on the, on the arms of this cross, there's city and world, the local and the global. And so we desperately want to see God form us into a church community that embodies the good news of Jesus here in Bend and in the other cities that we live in here around Central Oregon. We want our presence here to be good news so, so that even if our friends and neighbors and coworkers don't believe what we believe, they at least are glad that we're here. 
because we're seeking the common good, we're seeking peace, we're seeking reconciliation within our own context and neighborhoods. And so we practice this through hospitality, simply through being a neighbor, through opening our homes, opening our lives, opening our tables, sharing meals, forming friendships with people who are different than us, for maybe even those that are hardest for us to love. Simple expressions of hospitality where we reenact this gospel story that we were once enemies or strangers of God's. But in love, he has brought us near to himself and included us in his family. And so when we open up our lives to others, we are actually living out or demonstrating this gospel. So it's the practice of being a neighbor. And next, then the world. How does this extend to the rest of the country and the continent and all around the globe that God has created and is, and is redeeming. Specifically, we are called to the practice of justice or this broad term of remembering the poor. That we are called to reenact this aspect of the gospel as well, that we come to God with empty hands. We come to God with, as those with nothing to offer. We come to God as those who were being killed by our own sin and by the, by the system of the world, but in justice, in love, in righteousness, he reaches in and he pursues us and he gives us what we need to bring us back into wholeness with himself. And so we are called to be a church, as Antioch has always been, that organizes itself around the idea of justice. But we don't want it just to be an idea, we want it to be something that shapes our lives and the way that we engage uh, every day and every conversation that we're in. And so um, all different kinds of ways to practice this, right? Through generosity, through travel, through love, through hospitality. Um, we want to be people who give selflessly and generously the way God has. And then last week, if you were here, Rick, our, uh, the chairman of our elder board, walked through this idea of the reconciliation of the, the rest of creation, the non-human parts of creation, that this gospel is so big that it even includes plants and animals and earth and ecosystems and, uh, and all the stuff that we even can't see and don't even know about yet in the cosmos. God is making everything right, everything new, everything beautiful. And so he invites us to celebrate the good, to be good stewards of creation, to live gently and to live mercifully, and to learn how to interact in right relationships with the plants and the animals and the food that we eat and the clothes that we wear and, and how we do our lives and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's a beautiful idea that this gospel is big enough to, to include humanity and cities and world and everything else beyond that in all of creation. And so the practice we're suggesting is this idea of Sabbath, of creating space in your life to celebrate what God has made, to enjoy uh, simple, beautiful experiences within creation, to enjoy rest, to enjoy a time where God gets to be God and run the world while we take a break and enjoy what he's made. So finally this morning we come to the circle of church which, uh, as you'll see, is kind of in the center of the cross. Christ at the head in God, as this verse in, in Colossians depicts. But at the center of all this is the church. And that's the piece that I think, for many within our culture, would probably feel the most optional if we were to ask what kind of people uh, the world needs most. 
We understand most at a cultural level that uh, people with a healthy spirituality and a healthy relationship to themselves and a local and global mindset and a, uh, and a healthy understanding of environment and earth and things like that, people generally in central Oregon would say, yeah, I think all that's good. But what we're talking about is something that is centered upon this thing called the church. And uh, if you'll turn with me to the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, I just want to look at a short text in there this morning that will help us understand why the church is so central to not only our kind of vision and participation in this mission, but ultimately to what God is doing in the world. Ephesians in chapter 2, I'll just read a few verses in verse 19. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to an early community of Christ followers in the town of Ephesus. And he's helping them understand this new identity that they've been given as the people of God, this invitation to be a new humanity in, in a world that may not understand what they're doing. So in Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This beautiful little passage that Paul packs with several different images or metaphors to help Christ followers understand the nature and identity of this thing called the church. And he, he uses the phrase that we are not only citizens of God's people, but the end of verse 19, also members of God's household. In other words, Paul's saying that the church has this identity given to her as the family of God. That if Jesus' Father has now become our Father, then the nature of our salvation includes the fact that we have now been made brothers and sisters. That we've been adopted into this family. And so when you think about church, when the Bible talks about church, it's not primarily talking about a service that you attend on Sunday or an event that you go to once a week. It's talking about this identity as family members belonging to God and, to belong, and belonging to one another. Now, here's, here's why that's important, because a lot of times I've found that when we think about church, when we talk about church, most people in our cult culture associate the idea of church with spirituality more than community. So Barna did a study several years ago, the Barna Group, and found this, that among Americans who don't find church important, 39% say they don't attend church because they find God elsewhere. Okay, so almost 40% of people who don't go to church say it's because I find God elsewhere, which that's a, probably, if we're honest, a familiar concept living here in beautiful Bend, Oregon, right? There's lots of places if I want to have a spiritual experience, 
There's lots of places I could go to have that, right? Out on the mountain, on the trail, in the river, climbing the rocks, whatever it is. If I want to have a spiritual experience, I don't necessarily have to go to a church service. I can find God somewhere else. But you'll notice, again, the assumption within that answer is that the primary purpose of church is spirituality. And so the next next, uh, finding shows us even more. He says, among Americans who find church important, less than 10% say they attend church because they want to learn how to love other people well. Now that's interesting, isn't it? If we were to even ask one another or ask of ourselves, like why is church important in our lives? Why are we devoted to being part of a local church body? Is this one of the things that we would put at the top of the list? Because it's the primary place where I learn how to love other people. See, if we actually understood this vision of family or community as being central to the identity of the church, then it's not so much about where do I go and what do I need to do in order to have spiritual experiences. It's what is the classroom that God has created for followers of Jesus to learn how to truly love each other. See, if the purpose or the goal of church is to always have spiritual high experiences, then I think we'd all say, eh, it does okay at that. But if the purpose of the church is to teach us how to love like Jesus, it's perfectly built for that, isn't it? So one sociologist talks about it like this, that there's three fragments of spirituality within the modern Western society we live in. A mono-spirituality, a bi-spirituality, and a tri-spirituality. I just want to hit this quick because this sort of thing is interesting to me, but it might help us make sense of this place we find ourselves. When we talk about mono-spirituality, by the way, I did some amazing graphic design here to help you guys with this. You're really going to like it. You go to the next one, MJ. Um, see that? When we talk about mono-spirituality, we talk about the attempt to get in touch with the transcendent nature by getting in touch with ourselves. Okay, so it's the idea that even if in a non-theistic worldview I'm just kind of a, co- a collection of chemicals and random events, it's the sense that there's more out, that, more out there. There is this some sort of spiritual reality that is primarily pursued through self-discovery. Right? And so it's this longing for the transcendent by trying to get in touch with me, right? And I think we see elements of this all over Central Oregon culture. If you go to any of the coffee shops or bars and look at the bulletin boards when you walk in, all the events that people are advertising, right? Things around mindfulness and yoga and meditation and Eastern spiritual practices and things like that, which all those things in and of themselves, most of them are fine, but, you, but the, the message is that if you want to have a spiritual experience, draw away and get in touch with you. Okay? So there's a mono-spirituality fragment that runs really deep within our culture, and I would just say the problem that we tend to run in, as much as I believe in having a restored relationship with yourself, the problem is what do you do when you realize that maybe you're not the answer to all your own problems. 
maybe you are the problem, right? Then what do you do, okay? Well, then we move to bi-spirituality, which is saying I need to have some other connection, some other relationship that's going to connect me to God. And you see this in lots of uh, segments of society, but we actually see this within evangelical Christianity in America. The idea that uh, Christianity is primarily a personal relationship with Jesus, right? That the way to find truth, the way to find life, the way to find what we're looking for is to be in a personal relationship with Jesus. It's me and him. And if you think of uh, a lot of the worship songs that we have sung and celebrated over the years, uh, it doesn't matter if there's anybody else in the room. I can just sing these because it's me and Jesus, and that's all that matters. And we emphasize this personal relationship with Christ. And there are, if you can see how I brilliantly depicted this, there are other people. They're just kind of a nuisance to this whole thing, though. That unfortunately, if I'm going to have a relationship with Jesus, that means going to church. And unfortunately, that means there's going to be other people that I'm going to have to deal with, right? And so... This goes way deeper than we realize as well. When we talk about bi-spirituality, we're really talking about the root beneath what we call consumerism, and especially as it's prevalent in the church, that uh, this approach to spirituality is primarily about getting my needs met, about finding a place or an organization or a leader or a denomination or a church body that checks off all the boxes of what I'm looking for and to find people who will reinforce what I already believe, right? And so the downfall of bi-spirituality is that it also is rooted in this love of self that we uh, basically love ourselves so much we just want to surround ourselves with people that will reinforce that love, um, the third approach is called tri-spirituality. And um, it's not just a private encounter with the soul, and it's uh, not just a personal connection to God that happens to happen in the proximity of other people, but it's actually the idea that God is inviting us to discover him in the context of relationships, of community. Or you could even go as far as to say is that this sort of spirituality gets lived out as a public faith, not just as a private faith or a personal relationship. And so tri-spirituality is the idea that I find myself in relationship with God and others. That that's where life is found. And I want to actually argue that this is the spirituality Jesus taught. This is exactly what Paul is trying to say here in Ephesians. When he's saying other people aren't just an unfortunate consequence of being part of the Christian faith. He's saying to be a follower of Jesus in its essence is to be part of a family to be connected, to be related, to be devoted to other people and to experience God and follow him together. And so Joseph Hellerman says it best that salvation is a community-forming event. Salvation is a community-forming event. 
that what Christ is accomplishing through his life, death, and resurrection and the gift of his spirit isn't primarily about individuals, but it's about God bringing together a new family, a new humanity, a new community to call his own. And so you don't have to hold to the mono, by tri-spirituality stuff. That's not biblical language, but it is interesting to help us see how deeply some of these fragmented approaches to spirituality run within our culture and within us. Are we actually able to come to a place where we receive this identity, not just as individual Christ followers, but that in essence to be saved, to be Christian, is to become part of a community, of a family, of a household. And so, why do we gather here every week? Why do we, quote-unquote, go to church? I don't like that phrase. I think church is who we are, not where we go. But we understand what we mean when we say go to church. When we gather for worship on Sundays, we gather as a family, we gather as God's household, um, if we're really honest, not all of us like every Sunday, right? Sometimes we don't dig the music. Sometimes we get lost or bored in the message. Sometimes we've got other things that we should be doing or we'd rather be doing. You're checking your fantasy scores. I know you are. It, why do we do this? Why do we gather on a regular basis? Well, we gather because we belong to a family. And so Chesterton, listen to this. He goes, the man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. And the reason is obvious. In a large community, we can choose our companions. And in a small community, our companions are chosen for us. So when he talks about small community, I want you to think church. And one of the beautiful, brilliant aspects of the church is that it's one of the only places we go where our companions are chosen for us. Right? So you've heard me say this several times, that we don't have true community until there's someone there who we wish wasn't. Right? Until then, we're just a click. Until then, we're just hanging out with people that we've chosen because we have similar hobbies, similar passions. When it comes to the church, if the point of it is to be a classroom in which disciples of Jesus learn how to actually love each other, then it's brilliantly designed for this because God chooses people for us that we never would have chosen ourselves. People who would never get along in the wild and says, you're gonna be brothers and sisters. You're going to share life deeply. You're going to learn how to love and accept and include and forgive one another, just as I have in Christ. So Henry Nguyen, now in defined community, is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Right. So back to this passage from, uh, from Ephesians. 
It's this picture that the whole building in verse 21, in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It was fascinating being over in Italy last week and walking through some of these ancient historical sites. Uh, and and that, the ancient world was a pluralistic world, same as we live in. Many different gods and deities and religions and belief structure, structures and philosophies, same as, as it's always been. And one of the things that was the most revolutionary about the beginning of the Christian church is that if you wanted to go to the temple and you were to ask Paul or one of the other early Ephesians, where is the Christian temple? They couldn't give you a street address. They couldn't describe what the building looked like. Why? Because the, the people are the temple. And this was one of the things that actually got early Christians the reputation of being atheists, that they had no temple made out of bricks or blocks, the temple of God is built out of people. And this was a crazy idea in the early days of Christianity. The invitation is that we, as an expression of Christ's church here in Bend, each one of us sees ourselves as a block or as a brick being built together, being fit together, having rough parts of us trimmed off and shaved off, living life in close proximity, not just for the sake of our own spiritual experiences, but for the sake of creating a dwelling place for the Spirit of God, for the sake of being a physical representation of the presence of Jesus within our world. For Christians, our temple isn't a building. It's a body. And each one of us is invited to be part of it. And so obviously, attending a church service once a week is going to be insufficient for that identity and that calling that God's given us. And so when we talk about practicing reconciliation within the church, with one another, yes, that includes Sundays, but it also includes the other six days as well. It's the idea that, <clears throat> that this isn't just something we do once a week, but it's an identity that we live into seven days a week. And so let me just, to be incredibly practical for a couple seconds, let me offer a few suggestions or ideas of what this might look like to practice community, to practice sharing life together. First, when it comes to Sundays, I want to make some suggestions just suggestions. I'm going to throw them out there. You don't have to do them, but you should. Uh, as we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, as the body of Christ that calls itself Antioch, I want to actually invite you to consider coming early. I want to invite you, if this isn't primarily about, uh, about a service that's just kind of one directional, but it's about relationships, it's about family, then we've got tons of space and tons of time before the service for you to come and have coffee and donuts and to meet each other and to talk to each other and catch up on your week and, and ask how things have been going because I've been praying for you and I know that it's really hard. Um, don't, 
come at 10 and then do that for an hour while we're in here. Come at 9.30, <laughs> right? And, and then uh, you can come in and join us for worship. But I do want to invite you to think about would I create a little extra space to deepen relationships, to meet new people, to have conversations uh, before the gathering begins? I also want to suggest extending hospitality during that time or all throughout our morning when we gather here. What would it look like for you to see yourself, if you call Antioch your church, as the host of anybody who's visiting or any guests or anybody who's just checking us out? What would it look like for you to go out of your way if somebody looks new or lost or confused to welcome them and to get to know them a little bit and help them find out where they need to go for their kids or whatever else? Um, we, uh, this isn't something that a church staff can do on its own. This is a culture that we would love to see created that each week as we gather here, we consider ourselves hosts in the, in the household of God. I also want to encourage you to worship fully, right? Which again, might probably look like showing up in this room around 10 or so. That is when we start. Is that right, Kip? Okay. It's what the website says and what's what I've been doing. I just wasn't sure if everybody else knew that. We start at 10. Um, so you can have coffee and stuff before that. But we have built these worship services, including a call to worship that is actually theologically driven to help us understand what is happening here in this space and inviting you to not just be a passive observer of worship, to be, but to be an active participant. And we have incredible musicians and singers that I know it's easy just to sit and listen and sometimes that can be an expression of worship. But one of the beautiful things that God's people have always done together is to sing. And it's, uh, it's one of the only, only places that that happens in my life. I don't know about yours where we have this incredible opportunity to sing, to worship, to praise, and uh, to engage together. And so I want to invite us to think about that. Uh, a couple more, to serve joyfully. I hope that everybody who considers Antioch their church has a place where they are serving um, within kids, within media, within worship, within youth, within uh, several of the other opportunities and ministries of hospitality and set up and tear down. It takes a lot of people to put on uh, Sundays every, every week, dozens and dozens of people. And so we hope that uh, everybody here will find a place where they're able to serve regularly, faithfully, and ultimately joyfully. And then finally, give generously. Give generously. This is an expression of worship as well. This is a countercultural movement where we have the chance to, sh to demonstrate to one another and to the world that we've been saved by a generous God, a God who's been gracious to us, and, and we reflect that generosity when we give as well. And so obviously there's lots of times and ways that you can give, but this is part of why we still include it within the worship service, because this is also an act of worship. And so I just, you know, maybe that kind of sits wrong with you that I'm giving you a Sunday checklist of here's how to go to church or something like that. And uh, I know Northwesterners don't like being told what to do. All I want to say is, would you think about it? Like, you probably just haven't taken time recently to go, what, why do I go to church on Sundays? And how could I actually approach that in a way that would be more meaningful and more authentic and ultimately maybe create more space in my life for God to form the image of Jesus in me? 
And so, um, again, you don't have to do all that stuff, but you should. The, uh, the other six days, again, these are just kind of junk drawer terms, but be devoted to one another, right? Within community, and there's community groups, community groups, short-term groups, long-term groups. Um, it may be within one of the kind of groups that Antioch has that you're going to find a context for devotion, or maybe you just have people within this body that are your people. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And we want to encourage, that's the biblical language, is not just see each other once a week, but be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Organize your lives around relationships within those in this community, which looks like next, eating together, sharing meals today, together, cups of coffee, pints of beer, or whatever your thing is, opening your home, opening your table. Um, throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the church, the shared meal has been central to Christian fellowship. And it's one of the beautiful places where we get to come and to be vulnerable with each other, to, to say grace together, and to receive nourishment uh, from, from God together. Uh, thirdly, I want to say, what, was it, what would it look like for you to nurture Christ-centered friendships? We have all kinds of friendships and all kinds of people we hang out with, but the friendships or the relationships that mark the community or the family of God, they just they would have to be centered on Jesus to be authentic, right? It, that it wouldn't be awkward to have God talk between us. That it wouldn't feel like a party foul to drop the J-bomb or something like that. Like, no, like Jesus is the thing that brings us together and it's okay to talk about God and to pray for each other and to, uh, and to share what we're learning or what we're struggling or, or something like that. It doesn't have to be weird or awkward or churchy or, or whatever, but what would Christ-centered relationships look like in your life and how could you nurture those in creating space where the people you hang out with are able to talk and to, and to follow Jesus together? And then finally, in some ways, if I had to sum all of this up together, this may be an unlikely way to do it, but I would say, what is it that looks the most like practicing reconciliation within the body of Christ? It's this simple practice that Jesus commands that we would forgive each other. If we are living close enough to hurt each other, then we're gonna need to learn how to forgive. And so I don't have any illusions that the church is a place where people don't sin against each other. It's the place where when we do sin against each other, we forgive. By the way, that's also my only marriage advice, too. What's the mark of a Christian marriage? That we don't sin against each other? No. It's that when we do, we forgive. Forgive. That doesn't mean sweep under the rug. It doesn't mean ignore. It doesn't mean pretend that we're good. But it means in Christ centered relationships, in godly compassion, that when we've been hurt or wronged or sinned against by a brother or sister, that we don't let a by spirituality of consumerism say, well, I need to go find another church. Or we don't let a mono-spirituality of individualism say, this is why I need to get away from people and church altogether. But we live into the tri-spirituality of true church. 
that this is where we learn how to love as Jesus loves. And we know that central to Christ's love towards us is that he has forgiven us of all our sins and included us in his family. And so in closing, as you look at that list, you may go, gosh, I don't really have time for all that. I don't have time to add a whole bunch of groups or meals or friendships to my life. And I want to suggest that instead of walking away going, what do I need to add to my life? Here's the question I want you to ask this morning as I close. What is Jesus asking us to remove from our lives in order to love one another the way he's called us to? We already all have full lives. We're not just busy. We're crazy busy, right? So I don't want you to add anything. I want you to ask Jesus, what would I need to remove from my life in order to live more fully devoted to him and his family? What do I need to say no to? What do I need to cut back on? What do I need to remove from my life in order for these kinds of relationships, these kinds of communities, these kinds of uh, these kinds of things to be formed not just as a once a week sort of thing, but truly who we are and how we live. I don't know what the answer is for you, but I want to ask you to, to ask Jesus that this morning. So the beautiful thing is that as we come to the table, um, that this is a family meal. And uh, it's one of the reasons we do it the way we do. A shared loaf, a shared cup. The idea that we are sharing in the body and blood of Jesus together. That he has invited us to be part of his family. And therefore, every week we practice the family meal around, around the table. And hopefully that will bleed over into all the other meals we share throughout the week. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And ironically, if we're honest, many of us are ashamed to call Jesus ours. But he invites us, not out of duty or obligation, but out of authentic love to come and to find life in me. And so I want to invite you, as the band comes, to come receive communion. There's also going to be an opportunity to receive prayer in the back. Some of our prayer team people would love to pray for you, anything that's going on in your life. Will you stand with me? Our Father, it's amazing that we get to call you that. That we, coming from our own diverse, mixed up families of origin, have ultimately been given a new family and a new Father in you. And you and only you, we confess this morning are the one who can satisfy the longing of our souls, who can lead us into true and abundant and eternal life. 
And even beyond that, we confess that you, God, are the one who's making all things new, reconciling all things to yourself through Christ. So as we conclude this series and begin this journey of learning how to live out this ministry of reconciliation, we know that it's not just going to be clever pictures or even clear ideas empowers or fuels this mission, but it's going to be your spirit. And so we celebrate that, God, you have given yourself to us in your Son and in your spirit that you are with us, that you are in us, that you are moving deeply among us, and that you have also given us one another. So I pray for myself and for each of my brothers and sisters here today. Would you help us to love one another, to truly be devoted to each other, to share life deeply as your family, and that this would be truly an expression of your church, a place where your lordship is unopposed, where sins are forgiven, where hospitality is extended, where grace is shared and that you would use this messy, broken group of people we call Antioch to do miraculous, beautiful things in us and through us for your glory. So we trust you, God. We are grateful to be part of who you are and what you're doing and pray that your spirit would move deeply within us for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name.